The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And it's, as always, a big week in technology. The the military is playing catch-up with Starlink. They have finally started launching low-Earth orbit satellites that communicate with laser beams in order to have a system similar to Starlink, but uh, doesn't depend on Starlink. And this week, we're going to feature the man who started Pinterest. Uh, it's, uh, you know, he made a lot of money doing that. And basically the inspiration for it came from his bug collecting days when he was in grade school. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Peter in Bethesda. Dear Tech Talk, I want to advance my IT career. I'm currently working at the help desk, but would like to do more. What do you suggest? Love Tech Talk. Thanks, Peter in Bethesda. Well, Peter... The key for you is to actually start doing things technical on your own. Uh, employers like to see people who are take the initiative to learn stuff on their own. I'd recommend you uh, you set up a little mini IT lab at home and start playing around with stuff. Uh, you might also join user groups once you have decided what kind of software you're interested in, and you might subscribe to some of those industry magazines. Call them industry mag uh, rags. They'll tell you where, where the field is going. But there are, there are a lot of, uh, of things that you could play around with, uh, depending on whether you want to be software or hardware. For instance, virtualization is here to stay. So you, you might download a copy of VMware. You know, there's a, um, you know, there's a, a free version of VMware, and you could install VMware on your computer and play around with a virtual machine on your computer. It could be a good idea. Uh, Cloud computing is here to stay. You could get uh, you could get an account with one of with, with Amazon Cloud Services and play around with that just to sort of see what's going on. All of these uh, big cloud services will will allow you to um, do, you know to to get accounts with them. They're not too expensive, and you can play around with them. Uh, security's big. You could uh, you could sign up for a class at SANS S A N S. It's the gold standard in security training and. That's basically a group of, uh, of sysadmins, and they've got together and they pool all their knowledge about the hacks that are hitting their systems, and they, um, they have created a pretty good uh, curriculum set there. Uh, open source software is really good. Uh, you could install uh, Linux, uh, which is free. Pick one of the distributions of Linux distros and just install it on your on your computer at home. If you set up a virtual machine at home, you could install Linux as a virtual machine on either your Mac or your, or your, or your Windows machine. Uh, 
You can install Apache, which is also, it's an open source uh, web server, which is very good. Uh, and a lot of times people, when they install Apache as an open source web server, they'll install MySQL, which is an open source uh, SQL database. And you could start developing um, like a, a database-driven website. Database management. Uh, Oracle has student packs, um, which are, are free, that, that, that you basically have crippled versions of the Oracle products in that you can only have so many users, but you're developing, developing the applications. And of course, you've, you've got, as I said, MySQL, which is, which is open source that's free. Uh, you, you could pick a programming language and play around with it. Visual Basic is used for scripting in the Microsoft environment. C is always a great foundation language. It talks directly to the hardware. Java or C++ for object-oriented uh, uh, you know, languages uh, are pretty good. Python is, a, is really an easy language to learn, and it's used for machine learning and data science. And then if you're into internetworking, of course, you, could, uh, you can get some of the Cisco simulators online. They're, they're open source. You can play around with with open source Cisco devices, or you you might decide that you want to use software defined devices. I mean, any of these things are going to work for you. And once you find something you're kind of interested in, there are user groups that you you can go to the you can go to the monthly meetings of these user groups, and these are people actually using these devices. And if you go to these uh, user groups you, and you're working on a project, these guys will really be very helpful in helping you move along with your project. They'd love to teach you. Now, if you go to a user group, don't try to get a job. You try to get help on a project. Now, what will happen will be when you get help on a project, you'll meet people and they'll see how motivated you are to learn. That may lead to a job, but just don't lead with the fact that you want a job. So best of luck with that. It's uh, it's, it's the classic way to get a job if you've ever read What Colors Your Parachute by Dick Bowles. Doc, what do you mean, though, about not leading, you know, with the fact that you, how do you, you know, you want to sort of like downplay the idea that you're looking for an opportunity? Yeah, when you meet somebody, the worst thing you go to, they say, yeah, I'm looking for a job. Well, you coming know, off you know, desperate. Oh, my God. Nobody wants to talk to you. You're like a piranha. Yeah. You can say, I'm trying to install this Apache web server. And I've got a problem here. They want this patch. I don't know how to do it. I can't get it working. Do you have any suggestions? If you go to, if you say go to an Apache user group, and they would love to help you with that. Now, what happens is once you get to know them, by virtue of them helping you with a solve a technical problem, I mean, at that point you can say, yeah, I'm looking for a job, and and it, it, and then they they know you. And so, um, but you initially lead with, uh, you want somebody to teach you something in this user's group. And I'm telling you, tech guys are really, they love to teach other people. And you'll get a lot of people wanting to help you. But, uh, and then later on, you can mention the job if you want a job, but you just don't lead with it. Because <clears throat> what's going to happen See, there are a lot of jobs that are available. They don't, they don't even post them. And there will be people at the users group. They'll see you and they'll say, yeah, this guy's really motivated. He wants to learn stuff. He's reading here. He just is a go-getter. He's working on the weekend on this stuff. They say, that's the kind of guy we would want. More than likely, you'll get a job offer without even asking for it because they know you and they like your work ethic. And more importantly, 
they like the fact that you're curious and are going to and want to learn stuff and that you have uh, in the in in the view of them a growth mindset. Even if you don't know it, you don't mind jumping in and learning it. And that's exactly the kind of skill that they want in the, in the industry. We got an email from Jeff in Arlington. Dear Tech Talk, I'd like to clear off and erase all the programs on my hard drive before and uh, before I donate my computer. What do you recommend? It's a Windows machine, Jeff in Arlington. Well, Jeff, if, if you don't have any super secret stuff on it, you could just reformat the hard drive and then reinstall it. Now, do not do a quick reformat because what a quick reformat does it basically just puts uh, a new directory on the file on the on the hard drive a directory which says is there anything there in the directory basically has no files listed that's called a file allocation table it basically just replaces the file allocation table but it doesn't actually erase any of the data on on the drive so somebody could go in there outside of not using the file allocation table and all your data is there and somebody could actually read it. So you want to do a full format, which will actually reformat the entire drive and it will overwrite um, all of the files that are on there so they're more difficult to, uh, to recover. What if it says now, uh, restore factory settings? Is that sufficient or not really, those, those kinds of prompts that you get? Well, yeah, restore factory settings will not necessarily do a full format, reformat. So it will, uh, it will not necessarily do a, because they could just do a quick format. Because uh, a, a full format takes a while, and so you've got to sit there as it goes and writes on every disk. Now... If you've got nuclear secrets on your hard drive, you don't want anybody to get it because when you even if you do a full reformat, there are tools there that can go in and read the hard drive if there's any weak magnetic signals left. So simply writing over the hard drive once will not destroy the residual magnetism on the hard drive and it can still be read. So if you want to really really uh, clear the data off the hard drive so uh, a Soviet spy cannot do diagnostics on your, on your hard drive and reclaim the data, you can do something called use Derek's boot and nuke, D-band. Now, what boot and nuke does, it basically overrides over and over and over again about 10 times so that nothing is recoverable, even if Soviet spies get a copy of your hard drive. So you can download uh, Derek's Boot and Nuke from dband.org. And so you download a... Um, is that a, free? Yeah, it's free. Wow. It's free. And you, you can download it. And, uh, and, and basically, it's a file that you want to... You basically save to a CD. And then when you reboot your machine, you boot it up on the CD itself, and it will boot right into Derek's Boot and Nuke and it just goes into the process and just you know wipes what this off means everything. though you, you a lot of us will probably have to buy a peripheral just to have something to put a CD yeah, into. Well you well you could you could get a USB CD drive which is only about you know fifteen dollars. Uh -huh. They're they're really cheap now. Okay. Yeah, I mean I don't I don't have a CD drive on my laptop either because it's just because it, it's it's basically not worth the extra thickness and weight to carry the CD drive around with you everywhere all the time. And so I just have an external CD, CD drive when in the uh, when I need one every once every five years. Right. I mean, a heart. I mean, it's very rare that I need one. 
Right. Uh, but there are times when it, it is nice to have a CD drive that you want to, you know, uh, some some device that you buy. The uh, the device drivers drivers are on CD. You can't get them from the web. It's nice to have it, but. I only use it about once every five years. Now, in this case, it's absolutely essential to have a CD, a physical CD, for this D-band to work. Yeah, it, it or you could it, well, or you could have an external hard drive. It's just that you have to boot on something other than the drive that you're nuking. Right. Okay. So you've got to boot. So you you put you you could plug in an external hard drive and boot, and you could put Derek's boot nuke on that external hard drive and boot off the external hard drive. Doesn't have to be a CD. It's just that most people more than likely have an external CD rather than an external hard drive. But either one will work. Or you, or you could boot off a thumb drive. Actually. Oh well, that's good to know. But yeah, is there you, is there a downside? You, you thumb drives can thumb be a little bit limited because that's also treated as an external memory device, and you could boot off the thumb drive. Are most thumb drives, uh, you know, capacious enough to to hold all that that they need to hold? Oh um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. It's not. It, it's not a big program. Okay. It's not a big so you could, you could boot off a, a, a thumb drive and so yeah that actually that may be the best way to go boot off the thumb drive uh, because even Linux distributions you you can load them on a thumb drive and boot up in Linux off of a thumb drive yeah now that we're talking I think I'd recommend a thumb drive rather than the <laughs> oh, CD because because people don't have CDs anymore <laughs> and and guess what I think a lot of us have um, extra uh, thumb drives I've never used they've been around for years there's a few ones that I'm just waiting to be you know to have a mission in life so. Yeah, so you could download and, and copy the D-band program to your thumb drive, and then okay, you just great. have to configure the BIOS of your computer to boot up on the thumb drive. Okay. Uh, otherwise, so it, it normally just boots up on the main drive. We, let me just skip to the last uh, uh -huh. letter here because I think we've already at nine fourteen. Yes, we are. <laughs> yeah, dear Tech Talk, we got it. This is an email from Grover and Kilmarnock. Dear Tech Talk, I'm thinking of cutting the cord. What are my options? I'm a novice at this. Love the podcast, Grover and Kilmarnock. Well, cutting the cord is really, you know, getting rid of cable. And I cut the cord a long time ago. Uh, because when you deal with cable, you got to have a cable box for every TV you have. And they, and if you rent those from the uh, cable, a cable provider, they, they charge you $10 a TV. So if you got three TVs, you're paying $30 just for cable boxes. Then you're paying for all their programming, which they've bundled up in a way that you can't even control, and you end up with a gazillion channels that you have no interest in. And so, and it's very expensive. So a lot of people are just saying, to heck with this thing, and they just cut the cable. They, they, uh, they eliminate uh, the entertainment package from their internet service provider, and they also get rid of the cable boxes. But you can't cut all connectivity, because if you want to actually receive content from the web, you still have to have internet access. So what I'm talking about in cutting the cord, we're not cutting the internet access. You basically are eliminating the cable boxes to your TV, and you still have internet, which is coming into the Wi-Fi router. So you've got internet from your, from your cable provider coming into your house, and it goes to a Wi-Fi router, and the internet is a distributed via the Wi-Fi router. Then what you have to do is you have to find a way to get content into your television from the Wi-Fi router. Now you can either, if the TV's right beside the router, you could 
you could plug the TV into the Ethernet connection if your TV has an Ethernet connection. Uh, or if you have a smart TV, you could uh, you could simply use the uh, use the devices within the smart TV. They they actually have internet access within the TV. They've got a menu in there, and you can pick different applications like Netflix or Prime or Hulu within the TV itself. Now, I actually hate using the smart TV interface because it's so clunky and it's hard to use. What I prefer to do is get what they call a streaming stick that plugs into an HDMI port in the TV. And, um, and there, there are a number of sort of the dominant um, streaming devices out there with these streaming devices will connect to the Wi-Fi signal and they will then uh, bring the Wi-Fi signal into your TV, and then you can display whatever a video is coming out of that stick. So probably the, the number one um, uh, device out there for streaming sticks is Roku. It's very convenient. Um, I mean, it's very easy to use. Now you're when, using the word stick, but it, they're actually boxes, and like Roku's it's a actually box, right? a li Roku. If you get the, well, you can get a stick. Oh, you can. Which, which which actually just fits into like looks like a USB thumb drive. But if you get the really super deluxe one, it's actually a a little box. It's like a you know a two and a half by two and a half box. So generally, that, the boxes that, that, give you that plugs into the HDMI. The boxes port. give you more options, you know, a better interface, and all of that. Yeah, it it yeah it, it well the box gives you ultra HD. It's got memory built into it, which is really nice because if you're watching a TV, if you're streaming a like a live TV program with Roku and it's got memory, you can put it on pause it, and it will just record the program to memory. And when you unpause it, you'll come back to where you you first paused it. You won't it won't skip ahead even though it's live TV. So it's, it's really convenient to, to have that. And uh, so I, I, I have Roku. It's a nice interface. They've got a Roku channel. Apple TV is very nice. It's, a, it's also a box that plugs into the HDMI port. Uh, very convenient. My favorite. Uh, yeah. And yeah. so I've got actually several Apple TVs. I've got one Roku on the TV that the grandkids use because they're used to Roku because that's what they have at home. So they come here and they use my Roku device and they're, they're happy as clams. Now, Google Chromecast, they came out with a streaming stick. It is more like a stick. Although if you get the more advanced one, it's, it's kind of a disc looking thing. And, uh, but, global, but Chromecast is really meant to cast Chrome, the Chrome browser. So if you are, um, you know, if you're using a Chrome browser in your laptop, you can cast uh, a tab from the Chrome browser to a TV. So it was really meant for screen sharing rather than downloading uh, uh, all kinds of apps. And like by the way, Apple TV has that functionality, too. If you have an Apple device, you can easily cast it to your TV. Yeah, it's uh, got which is, that. You know, you're in. watching a YouTube video or whatever on your little thing, and you want to watch it on a big thing, then you just cast it. Whatever you're casting, you can throw it onto your big screen, which is nice. You can, and that's just built into the to the uh, operating system of the iPhone. You, yes, it is. You can cast it. You don't have to download any particular software. That's correct. You can you can cast Roku too. You can download the Roku app to your to your iPhone, and then you, there's a there's a place where you can cast it from the the Roku app to the screen. 
And then the last one is Amazon Fire TV. They wanted to get into the business of this. Uh, so you can you can so you want you, you want to pick one of these one of these sticks. You know they're you know they're less than a hundred dollars. Uh, I always get the um, maximum memory because I like the ability to pause live TV and then come back and I don't miss anything. It's really so that's very really, good for people who don't have a DVR capability. Uh, otherwise, then that's that's there's your DVR right there. That yeah, that works That's perfectly. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Now, 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 once you get your um, your your device like Roku or Apple TV or Amazon Fire, you can download different applications that will have specific channels on them. So, like Hulu has like like live TV channels as well as as well as uh, stored programs that that you could watch. Um, so that Hulu is a um, is a uh, streaming service that you can buy. So people who who have cut the cord, you, you, like if you want to get, if you'd like to get live TV streamed to you, you have to get a service that bundles it up. So Hulu is one, and if and you you know you you've, you've got to pay a monthly charge there, and they have different tiers, and you can pick what uh, what channels and what 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 you want to have on it, and the, the the more you get, the more you pay. Uh, Direct TV Stream is another one. Um, that uh, and the, and they've got Sling TV. Those would be sort of the top three. Right, and, and those they're those kind of all like, have uh, you know they're basically cable programming, aren't they? I mean, like Direct TV, they're pretty much offering the same channel lineups as cable systems do. They they are, and mm -hmm. and but they have different tiers, so you can you can pick your bundles a little ease more easily. Mm -hmm. uh, and then and and you you don't have to have a cable box to get them. Right, and and uh, you just stream it directly to your TV, and then you you've got what you want. So so I have Direct TV Stream. Uh, that's the one I picked. It it had the selection of channels that I liked. But what is nice, I've got two locations. I've got I've got a location down at the Bay. I've got a location up in Northern Virginia, and I can use the same account at each house. So I just pay for one Direct TV Stream, and I use it at two locations. Is there a limit if on locations, Doc? No, their limit on on simultaneous screens. I paid for two screens. Uh huh. So if I'm watching a screen down here and somebody at the other house is watching a screen, we can only watch one screen. We can only watch two screens simultaneously. Whereas Hulu, you could get up to five screens, for instance. So what you do, it depends on how many kids you have in the house watching it. So for me, the the two screens is all I need, but I can use it at two locations, which is really quite convenient. And then you've got Netflix, of course, and Prime Video, which you can stream through your your stick. They, you know, there are a lot of other ones: HBO Max, Disney Plus. Everybody's streaming now because they're realizing that people are cutting the cord. So all these different content vendors are are trying to stream their stuff separately. Plus, there are a lot of uh, channels that are ad supported, where you can you 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 don't have to subscribe to say Netflix. If if you don't mind ads, you can get movies for free, and then you just have to you just have to put up with the ads when you're when you're when you're working there. Now now the the and so th those are all the options for cutting the cord, and you will save money in the end. But what's happening these these vendors like Hulu, Directv, and Sling TV, they're they're edging up their prices till eventually it's going to almost be the same same price as cable if they keep edging the prices up. But but the nice thing is you've got competition. So like if Hulu raises their price too much, 
since you're month to month, cancel them. Just go to DirecTV. And so you're not locked in by, say, a particular cable provider where they've run cable to your house. And so competition is keeping the prices lower. Now, the second thing that I did when I when I cut the TV, cut the cord, was I installed Tableau. Now, Tableau connects to the antenna. So I've got Tableau in my attic. I've got it connected to an antenna. And then the Tableau, and the Tableau device connects directly to my Wi-Fi. So I get over-the-air television through my Wi-Fi, and I just download the Tableau app to Roku, Apple TV, or Amazon Fire, and I can watch over-the-air television through my streaming app, which is, which is really very convenient. And I can set it up as a DVR, too, because I I've got a, a, a terabyte hard drive hooked to it, and I can select over-the-air TV programs that I want to record, and I can, I can record those very, very easily. Now, what's nice with the Tableau, though, is I can I can connect a Tableau with my smartphone. Then I can leave the house and say I could go to a, a hotel in Paris. I could log on to the Wi-Fi. I could open up my Tableau app. I could connect to Tableau back at the house in Northern Virginia and watch over-the-air television from Virginia while I'm in Paris. So you could see, watch the local news and see a local I weather forecast local and news, all of that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so, and so I, I can be down at the Bay and I can watch local news up in Northern Virginia, and then I can use screen sharing and I can send it to my TV down here at the Bay and I'm watching over the air television from Northern Virginia. So I really do like these, uh, these Tableau devices. So I think I went a little bit overboard on this, but that is all you need to know about cutting the cord. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Uh, we most certainly will. And uh, speaking of sticks, stick around, because we're about to meet a man who used to pin bugs on cardboard as a kid. I hope they weren't live, but we'll find out. And then turned that idea into one of the most popular websites of our time, Profiles in IT, next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. How do you advance your career while still working full-time with an education that fits your schedule? Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University, changing lives one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. 
Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Ben Silberman. S-I-L-B-E-R-M-A-N-N. Ben Silberman is an American internet entrepreneur who co-founded and is CEO of Pinterest, a social media network and self-described visual discovery engine. Silberman was born 1982 and raised in Des Moines, Iowa. His parents were both ophthalmologists with a family practice, and they dreamed of Ben becoming a doctor. (laughs) Uh, When he was young, he collected dried insects that he would pin up on a cardboard uh, display case. So you made the point, dried insects. I'm I'm assuming they're dead when he's pinning them up. There's no cheating on that, I hope. Yeah, he... All he right. basically, uh, yeah, probably put them in a jar till they died, and they and they dried up, and then he pinned them on a, on a on a on a cardboard display case, uh, and that was that was a hobby that he really enjoyed. In 1998, he attended the Research Science Institute at MIT, uh, and 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 he became quite interested in in technology there. In 99, he graduated from Des Moines Central Academy and Des Moines Roosevelt School. And he was accepted into Yale. Now, uh, to keep his parents happy, he enrolled in pre-med. So he was taking science classes, and he was prepping for his medical school entrance exams while he was there at Yale. But he got into it after a while, and he just decided, I, I'm not into this. I'm just not into this. So he changed his career aspirations to business. And he uh, and he basically uh, got a degree ultimately in political science. Um, I guess he just wanted to get out complete. I get well. At least it was a science. <laughs> Maybe that's how he <laughs> rationalized it to his parents. He said, he well, said, it is a science. Mom, Dad, I'm still in science. <laughs> political science. But it must have been kind of an easy one of those easy majors for him because he, he was spending a lot of time actually not doing schoolwork, but you know, working on his business interests and, and developing that side of things. himself. Yeah. Yeah. So his last year of Yale, he applied for consulting jobs, and he landed a job in a DC-based corporate executive board. Now, he tried to be a good consultant, but it was just boring, and his interest drifted again. And, and by the mid-2000, uh, around 2005, uh, Silverman and his girlfriend, then-girlfriend, quit their jobs and moved west. At the end of 2006, he landed a job uh, doing customer support for Google's advertising division. Now, he spent a couple of years at Google, but without a tech degree— and without being able to code, he figured, "There's, I'm not going to go anywhere at Google. I mean, he was just there, you know, shilling their advertising service. He wasn't interested in that. But he did learn something about Google and how they scaled. He sort of realized the impact that Google has by developing systems that will scale. And so Google changed his perspective on what was actually possible. So... After two years, he decided to strike out on his own and start his own business. That's what everybody at Google aspires to do. That's all they talk about at break, actually. So Silverman's first product, which he launched with a college friend, Paul Sierra, was a shopping app called Tote. 
And they got a little bit of seed money. I guess he had some connections out there in Silicon Valley. They got a little bit of seed money. But Tote failed to take off. But he learned something from Tote. This is one thing you learn when you're out in Silicon Valley. Learn from your failures. So while Tote really didn't gather much interest, he noticed something quite interesting, that whenever people would use Tote, they would use the app, the Tote app, to mail pictures of the products to view later. So they would go in there, use Tote, and they would see something within Tote. They would save the picture, and they'd mail it to themselves so they could view that product later. And so that struck a chord with Silberman. And he started thinking back about his boyhood hobby, collecting bugs. You know, he'd see a bug that he'd like, and he'd pin it to the board. So he decided, well, I see a picture that I like. I'll pin it to the board like a bug. That was, his, that, that, was the, that was the link. So in the fall of 2009, Silberman met Evan Sharp. He was a, a Columbia graduate school um, student. He was in the, in the uh, Department of Agriculture, uh, Architecture. And they started talking about digital collection, collecting digital pictures. And, uh, and that triggered an idea that evolved into Pinterest. And the, the two began working on it right away. Now, Silverman's wife, I mean... His, he moved out with his girlfriend, and they ultimately got married. So the same girl is now his wife. Now, Silverman's wife came up with the name Pinterest because you're going to pin things that interest you to a board. So pin interests, Pinterest. So uh, she came up with that over Thanksgiving dinner. So Sharp, who was uh, Evan Sharp, coded much of the site sitting at Whole Foods on Upper West Side of Manhattan. Sharp actually was living out in went outing and uh, lived out in in, in uh, Manhattan. He was a guy doing the coding, and then Sieberman and Sierra worked out an out of an apartment in Palo Alto. So they they came up with the idea. They knew the VCs. They knew the culture out of Silicon Valley. So they started working to get funding for this thing, and they had the guy out in. Uh, in Manhattan, doing the coding for them. Now, Sharp, <clears throat> Sharp developed and coded over 50 working versions of the site, experimenting with, experimenting with different column widths, layouts, ways of presenting pictures. When the site launched in March of 2010, Sharp dropped out of, our, of uh, architecture school. He took a job at Facebook and moved to Palo Alto. And Silverman <clears throat> really had uh, started raising v VC funding. By January of 2012, this was, you know, less than two years, their monthly user, unique users exceeded 10 million users a month. And by April of 2012, that had doubled to 20 million unique data users a month. So they had a winner going on here. Now, nearly 80% of Pinterest users were women, mostly between the ages of 25 and 54. That is a great demo for advertisers. Yeah, that's now, the perfect. That's that's all the demo. Well, there's some that f focus on teenage, you know, markets, but nobody yeah. over 55. Nobody apparently nobody cares about people over 55. But but yeah. 25 to 54, that is the sweet spot for marketing. Absolutely, that really is. Now now they now the thing is when Pinterest came out, there was no way to make money. People were just pinning stuff 
to that. And it was a completely different, uh, different concept. You would basically pin pictures of things you were interested in and create boards. So you could create a board that you could say, here's a board of all my dream vacation spots. Here's a board of all of the, you know, doilies that I love. So you can have different boards in different subject areas. So people would make different boards and they would, uh, and then <clears throat> everything was searchable. So what happened was that they wanted to make this site like a dis discoverable. So they created this very sophisticated search engine where you could search for stuff and then the boards of other users would show up and you would get ideas from them. So the idea was that you could actually discover stuff on Pinterest. Now, this is distinctly different from Facebook, where they try to feed you stuff with a news feed. There's no news feed in Pinterest. You just create your board, and then you can search around for stuff you're interested in, and you can, and you can discover other people's boards. So it's, it's, it, it's more self-discovery rather than news feed fed. Now, Doc, I've never actually used Pinterest. Do, do, you, uh, do you know if uh, you actually have to have a keyword, or can you actually put in an image and try to find similar images? How does that work? You do, well, I've, I've just done keywords. I've never yeah. tried to put in an image. You I usually not just do that. keywords mm -hmm. if I search through it. Yeah. And really, I'm not a big Pinterest. I have a Pinterest account, and I played with it, but I have to say I'm not a big Pinterest user. Uh, I, don't, I don't maintain any boards. But it turned out to be, you know, really popular. Even the younger demographic is really interested in this. But because they had no advertising and had no revenue, they ended up having 25 rounds of fundraising. And they raised a total of $1.5 billion, not even made a penny. This is, this is the magic of... Uh, of Silicon Valley. They, and they said, well, we'll eventually make money when we decide to, to monetize the site. Finally, when they were getting close to, um, you know, monetizing the site, Silverman hired Tim Kendall. He was the engineer. He was an engineer and in an MBA. He got an MBA from Stanford. Kendall is credited with creating Facebook's monetization schedule. So, strategy. Remember, Facebook in the beginning was not monetizing very well either. They just were losing money. And Kendall is the guy that figured out how to, how to make money at Facebook. So they hired Kendall. Now, after Kendall came on board, Facebook makes money via advertising using promoted pins. So basically, pins are basically ads. So a, um, a um, uh, you know, an advertiser will say they have a product that they're really proud of, say, some sort of face cream or some couch or piece of furniture. They'll create a picture and pin it. And then they'll make it so their pins, their pinned pictures come up in search results. And, uh, and so that was the advertising model. So you, you don't see advertising until you do a search, and then you'll see paid pins as well as pins that come up just because they fit your search criteria. Do those and pins then, go as far as having like a link in them that you could go straight through to the product page? Like a, Yeah, there, there's uh -huh. right within the pin, there's a buy it button. There you go. There you go. So yeah. you can click the buy it button and you can buy it on the spot. Yeah. So this turned out to be a very, uh, a very successful way to advertise on Pinterest. So, you know, so they were making money. 
So by April of 2019, they were making enough money that they could do an IPO. They did an IPO, and the company was valued at about $12 billion, <laughs> which is not bad. That, that was their market cap when they, when they had the IPO. Now, at the time of the IPO, they had around 300 million monthly active users. They were all there were about 200 billion Pinterest pins. How do they know that? How do you count 200 billion, Doc? Who's sitting around <laughs> me? Who's sitting around know. counting? Well, I, I think they let the computers do that. <laughs> yeah, they must. Uh, I think it's a computer. Deal. Yeah, but it's they impressive. Have, it's impressive. They had the four billions. billion boards, different boards, different subjects on them, and 200 million saved shopping pins on a daily basis. So it had really scaled. Now, Silverman owns an 8% stake in the company because he had to dilute himself, of course, because they were bringing in all this VC money for all of this time because they basically brought in $1.5 billion of VC money uh, leading up to the IPO. And so his stake had been diluted down to 8% by the time they went public. Uh, and at the mo and as of June of 2021, they had 454 million users worldwide. Now, his net worth now with his 8% stake in Pinterest is $3.8 billion. So I think his mom's probably happy, even though he didn't become a doctor. <laughs> yeah, but if I you compare him to Elon Musk, he's a failure. So I don't know how his parents feel about this. Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't compare to Elon yeah. Musk at all. But, but $3.8 billion is not bad. Now, Silverman's still married to his, his girlfriend, Div 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 Divya... Baskaran? Baskaran. Yeah, yeah, sounds about right. Yeah. And they have they have two children and they as you would expect reside in San Francisco. So there you go. Everything that you wanted to know about Ben Silberman, the co-founder of Pinterest. Well, you're going to wish you had six fingers on one hand because we're about to give you a list of six things the CEO of any startup should really have. So pour yourself a coffee, pull up a chair as we join Doc for his observations from the faculty lounge next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. How do you advance your career while still working full-time with an education that fits your schedule? Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University, changing lives one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. 
Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. Now let's look at the six skills that are required for, for a startup CEO if he wants to take it all the way to the IPO. Now I started thinking about this because... Ben uh, Silverman, he started a company, was CEO as a startup, and took it all the way to the IPO, and he's still a CEO. Well, as you go through those different stages, it requires totally, totally different skills. Now, many CEOs only have the skills that allow them to get a startup, and when the VCs come in and start putting their money in, they'll bring in a professional CEO to sort of run the place and to scale it up. I mean, that's what happened at Google, for instance. You know, the two Google founders in the beginning were not CEO. They were basically tech gurus. They brought in a professional CEO to scale Google up. Now they're back in the CEO positions. So this is very, very commonly done. So what are the skills that a CEO needs as the company is growing? Well, the number one skill right in the beginning is to set the vision. You've got to have a really clear vision. You need to have a good sense of what's going on with the industry and a good sense of what's going on with the competition. The second skill you need, you've got to monitor key trends and pivot accordingly. You must stay on top of key trends in the industry or competition and navigate the ship over time. So for instance, with Pinterest, they started out with this shopping bag tote, which failed, but Ben looked at how the users behaved and noticed that they were saving pictures to review later. And from that observation, they pivoted to Pinterest. And a, a good CEO in the startup stage has to be very observant so that he can pivot. Almost all startups pivot once, twice, or three times. It's very, very, very rare for a startup not to pivot. The third skill that the CEO needs is to be able to keep the team focused on the same goal. It, and to make certain that all of the employees share the same vision and have clarity of where the company is going so that all staff are sailing in the same direction. The CEO must be able to evangelize and motivate. He's, the CEO is basically the chief evangelist. Now, this includes cheerleading the staff from top to bottom, getting prospective business clients and investors excited about getting involved in the company. So all of these first four skills are kind of in the, in the beginning stages. Then as it begins to scale, the company CEO must manage key targets and budgets. He's got to keep on the business plan. He's got to keep the, the, make certain that liquidity requirements are met. The CEO needs to set achievable proof of concept points and put key managers in place for hitting the goals. This is the so, point at which we lose a lot of startup CEOs, though, isn't it? This is exactly it? where yeah, you lose is, a lot of startup yeah. CEOs, where they're unable to delegate. They, they're basically a one-man, you know, in the first four stages, they're like a one-man band. They're everywhere. But now they've got to budget, They've got to bring in key staff. They've got to delegate, and they've got to start planning. This is a different skill set 
then you need to start the company up. And this is where we lose a lot of the CEOs along the way. To be fair and to then, them, though, a lot of them don't really want to stay in that role either then at that point because they love the creative side and they love the uh, uh, you know conceptualizing. So That's right. They A lot of the startup CEOs view that stage of the company becoming a suit, and they hate that. They want to they wanna show up at work in a T-shirt and tennis shoes and develop. So there are a lot of individuals in, in, in the startup world who will take it to the, to the fourth stage, and then the VCs will bring in a professional CEO, and then these guys go back and start something else. So they stay in the startup realm indefinitely because that's what they love. And so the key is, I mean, the reason you start a company is, is to do what you love. So, you know, it's, you know, you, 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 uh, you have to make certain that you can do that. Not many CEOs can, can, can span the whole thing. I mean, you got um, uh, Jeff Bezos turned out to be a great, you know, startup and then, and he pivoted and then they took, and he, and he scaled Amazon to enormous size. So he was able to, he was able to manage at all levels. Uh, Zuckerberg, not so much. I mean, Zuckerberg was able to to stick with it a long time. He's still CEO, but many think many sort of feel like maybe he's not the best person to be CEO of Facebook now. Um, Steve Jobs did it. He was able to keep rejuvenating. So it's it's a very rare rare case where a CEO can take it all the way to the end. And Ben was one of those CEOs who could do that. Then the final area that you got to keep the company liquid and in business. The worst thing you can happen is to run out of capital prior to launch or prior to proof of concept because you can't attract additional capital. So you got to be able to take it all the way to the point that it's self-sustaining and that it can make money. So Ben took Pinterest all the way to the point that they could they were making money that they could actually um, they could actually um, issue an IPO. They were making enough money to be successful. So this area of being liquidity, he made what Ben did, he made the critical choice of hiring Tim Kendall to create a monetization strategy for Pinterest. So he knew he had to do that. He he didn't personally want to do it because he didn't want to ruin the purity of Pinterest. He didn't want to ruin the so he had to bring somebody else in to visualize what could be done. And he brought in the right guy to do it. So he was able to stay on there. So so Ben was able to stay in CEO and he's still CEO, but those are the six categories, the six skill sets you need if you want to go all the way from startup to IPO launch and becoming a, a public company. Doc, I think Jeff Bezos stands out in this kind of narrative because um, I think maybe one reason he manages to stay CEO of Amazon is scaling is an understatement with that company. It started as an online bookstore, and now it pretty much owns and runs and provides anything you could ever want. And and so, in a sense, he keeps reimagining Amazon completely. You know, he so keeps what, coming up with completely Bezos new dimensions. Did that was, what Bezos did that was extremely innovative is, is the way that they come up with new products first. They, uh, they write the press release for the new product first. And they sell people on the value of that product based on the press release. If the press release has legs, they will allocate money to develop the product. And the other thing that he does, he'll try anything once. So he has created a culture of innovation within Amazon. Anybody can propose anything. 
you know, like Amazon Fresh, all these all these different product lines that Amazon has, even Amazon Web Services, they all came from within the organization. And what he does, uh, he'll let anybody propose anything and he'll support it, but they have to write the press release first because you have to have a clear vision of who the, the, uh, the target audience is. And that simple method of innovation has actually spread this innovative culture down within the Amazon organization. So it's not Jeff Bezos coming up with the ideas. It's the organization coming up with the ideas, sort of like 3M did, the way they innovate. They let individual engineers come up with ideas. So Bezos was able to create an innovation engine within Amazon, which I think is extraordinary. And it's very interesting because uh, I didn't know that, um, uh, it, it, this idea of, of writing a press release that then becomes a mission statement. It has to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're kind of, you know, you're kind of obligated to make that real. You make a promise yes. and now you're making it real. That's right. And so they, 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 they like to say this, they start from the end and work back. That is their famous mantra there at Amazon. They start from the end and work backwards. But so, not everything works equally, right? I mean, at times they pull the plug. I know that they've pulled back on, they had Amazon brick and mortar bookstores uh, around mm -hmm. the country, and they've pretty much shut those down. So they do. That I lasted mean, a couple of years. They tried it. Scale, yeah. And he doesn't mind ending it. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, fail fast. That's right. And so, I mean, that's, that's, that's what he does. So he's got a really a great, uh, a great, uh, approach to that. So he had a skill set which was absolutely extraordinary. Now, on the other hand, say Steve Jobs had a skill set where he was sort of the innovation engine. He would work with Johnny Ives and create innovation as they would interact with each other. And so Steve Jobs, it, instead of creating an innovation engine that spread across Apple, he concentrated that with himself. And to a certain degree, that's why when Jobs died, Apple stopped really innovating so much, and they just became really a, a, a company that could execute well, could execute the supply chain well. But there haven't been major, major breakthroughs that are transformational out of Apple since uh, since Steve Jobs left. And yeah. they've just uh, perfected what Steve Jobs had already developed before he died. So it's a completely different. So I would say that uh, the current CEO of, of Apple is a great executioner, but he's not uh, not necessarily a great innovator. Let's talk about this military satellite system. Yeah, because you know what? I'm going to say something before you finish the okay. thought. Is that uh, Elon Musk is uh, a truly an innovator. I think we all have to admit that about him. And and in this case, it, we're about to, uh, to tell you why. I really believe this tells the story. When the uh -huh. defense, the defense rather, advanced research projects agency, DARPA, which is trusted with, you know, really spearheading brand new technology primarily for use with the military, when they're trying to catch up to Elon Musk— <laughs> Now you know how the private sector can really outperform sometimes. And go I ahead know, and tell, yeah. tell, tell them what I mean, Doc. Yeah. I mean, so Elon Musk, yeah, he, he's able to innovate extremely. Look, look, he wanted to reduce the cost of space travel. So what did he do? He said, well, let's make the booster reusable. Uh, and that cuts down half of the cost of the, of the launch. And everybody in traditional space said, you are an idiot. You can't do that. And he kept doing it, failing, doing it, failing, doing it, failing. Finally, after multiple failures, 
He successfully did it. And he's now the dominant launch platform in the world. And everybody's copying him now. Now he did the same thing with internet access using satellites. Up to this point, satellites, all of our satellite communication had been geosynchronous orbit. These are basically satellites that that, that stay at the same point in space and they rotate around the Earth at the same rate that the Earth rotates. So they stay fixed in space and they're at 22,000 miles out and it takes a lot of signal to get up there and back and you've got latency just because of the speed of light to get out there and back. So he said, let's make a satellite, let's make a, an internet system not based on geosynchronous orbit, but low Earth orbit satellites that means that the satellites are constantly moving overhead. They're very low in orbit, so there's very low latency, and, uh, and you don't need such giant antennas to reach them. So he set up a 1,000, he's ultimately a 5,000 low-Earth low orbit satellites spanning the world, and you can get Internet access to those. These satellites communicate with lasers between, laser between them, so you can communicate with one satellite that can go via laser through the satellite network and it can come to a, a, a down station in another part of the world. So now a the government station. is just trying to uh, duplicate that by beginning laser uh, communication too between satellites. Is that right? That's right. So now DARPA all of a sudden is saying, hey, this, this is a pretty good technology. We better get into that. So DARPA just recently uh, achieved satellite laser communication between two satellites. They had a 40-minute communication thing back on April 14th. Uh, it was between two satellites that, um, that uh, they had launched. And now they said, now we're going to launch an array of 20 satellites, and we're going to create our own Internet access that doesn't depend on Starlink. So they're so proud of the fact that they're going to duplicate what Elon Musk has already done. So it's a case where Elon is actually ahead of DARPA. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And I want you to go to the website, www.stratford.edu. Check out our cybersecurity programs, software engineering programs, computer networking programs, healthcare, nursing, hospitality management, culinary arts, business and accounting and tell them that you heard about those programs on tech talk radio tech talk radio is sponsored by stratford university for more information on courses at stratford university call 1-800-444-0804 thanks for listening to tech talk radio online